Springville. Hey. <laughs> Good morning. It's been a while since I've been up here. I have been chained to my desk, uh, figuratively, of course, uh, working on our first core class um, that is going to be piloted in January. Good news, it's full. Yeah, yeah. Bad news, it's full. Um, but we will be offering the exact same class again in the fall. So if you're a keener and you really want to get uh, plugged in so you have top priority of getting in to the next one in the fall, you can email us and we can get you on the waiting list. Um, but I, I got to say, first of all, Dylan, where are you? Congratulations, brother. Congratulations. <clears throat> I don't know if we put like onion extract in the water or, or what, but man, uh, that was really encouraging. Um, so... Merry almost Christmas. I feel like this week is kind of weird because we still have a whole week before we actually get there and we're kind of looking at Advent and, and I want to alley-oop us a little bit into what we're going to look at next week and not step too much on the feet of Jesus as we look forward to Christmas. But what are you looking forward to the most? Because at this time of year, that tends to be, there's something about a hopeful anticipation or expectation of this time of year. I know there's certain sounds and sights and tastes and smells that we all look forward to. Having Michael Buble just serenade your soul deep into the season, right? Maybe family traditions or family Christmas movies like Home Alone, of course, or Elf, or Die Hard, if that's your thing. <laughs> but maybe some of us are just looking forward to much needed rest. Maybe it's been quite a year. Maybe we've come out of a season we're very taxed and we're tired. We're feeling the fatigue. But this time of the year also gives us an opportunity not just to look forward and have hopeful anticipation, but also reflect looking back. To look back at what this year has kind of been for us, what these seasons of life have given us, but then also look forward. And if we're honest, the past few years have been less than normal, amen? Maybe some of our Christmases or our family traditions have been disrupted. Maybe we're all kind of feeling a sense of a, a lack of normal or not so ideal Christmases in the past. That can come with lots of feelings, if we're just honest with ourselves and kind of look inwardly to our heart posture. There can be disappointment and loss that some of us have experienced. Maybe we're actually feeling the strain of worry or anxiety more than the past. Maybe we're looking back and seeing unaccomplished goals or looking forward to maybe misplaced hopes and sitting in the tension of that. Wherever we are this year, I think there's still this hopeful anticipation where we're always looking for better. That's exactly what Advent is about. And Dave did a great job just kind of giving us a history of what historically the Christian tradition of Advent has been about, although I am disappointed he didn't lead us in a Gregorian chant. <laughs> Next year, Dave. But as early as the fourth century, Advent uh, was associated with all sorts of different traditions and candle lighting and fasting and longing and actually represented the meaning of Advent was in the waiting the meaning of Advent was in the anticipation where we could look back and look at history's promise that God one day would come to make all wrongs right, but then also here we are in the tension of still waiting for God to come and finish what he started in the person of Jesus. And Advent in invites us to kind of sit in the waiting. It's kind of like Christmas Eve, but for like thousands of years, 
that anticipation, that excitement that is building in us, that's the promise of hope of Advent. It invites us to put ourselves in Israel's sandals and kind of walk around in the hopeful anticipation of what is to come, but knowing that we're on the other side of the first coming of Christ, it also invites us to reflect on what that actually means and then look forward to his promise to still come again once and for all. That's not usually how we approach the Christmas season. Guilty? Usually as soon as mid-November hits, we deck our halls, we deck our houses, we deck our trees, we put lights up, we start sipping eggnog to put on a little bit of extra weight, we start hitting the malls or our keyboards to start our shopping. And that's not a bad thing, but it can miss out on the most important thing. It can miss out on the hopeful anticipation for the God who saves. It can miss out on the true purpose and meaning and message of Christmas that it's actually in disappointment. It's in loss. It's in suffering and hardship that we can be encountered with the true hope of the God who comes. That's Christmas. So we all have these objects of hope. This isn't a, just a Christian thing. We all have objects of hope that we look to, something in the future that we look to to trust to make life better, amen? That's not a religious thing. That's not a Christian thing. That's a human thing. We all look to something, whether it's the next stage of life, the next season, that career, that promotion, hoping that the economy gets better, hoping that Bitcoin survives and resurrects by the power of Jesus, hoping that we meet the one and get married by that stage, hoping that our kids turn out okay, hoping that our marriages improve, hoping that our mental and emotional health gets better. We all live lives of hopeful expectation. We're all looking for something to put our hope and trust in. Hope without an object is not hope anymore. We have to hope for something, right? We have to hope in something. We place our hopes in the things that we trust the most to comfort us. And that's just a human condition. That's the posture of our hearts. But here's what I want us to understand about hope. It's actually the object of our hope that points us to the object of our worship. The object of our hope is what points us to the true object of our worship. And again, worship sounds like, oh, I guess, is this, what, is this worship? Is this what we're doing? No, no. Worship isn't just a religious expression of Christians. Worship is the default condition of the human heart. We were actually made to worship. We were made to live our lives giving worth and value to something and hoping that that will reflect back to us meaning and value and purpose. So worship isn't just a religious thing that we do for religious people. It's actually what we look to and trust in to give us our very identity. It's really important to see that. What's interesting is that the Bible doesn't deny that. The Bible actually shows up and says that's good because you were actually created to worship. The God who formed you and shaped you made you to image something. That you were made as an image bearer to reflect whatever you think will give you life. You become like what you worship. 
But then the Bible comes and tells us the truth. Amen. Comes and tells us the truth that our core condition, our main problem, isn't that we're worshipers and we pour our life out towards objects of hope. It's that we actually have a malfunction of our worship. We have a malfunction of what we look to for hope. The core problem isn't that we do bad things, we do, but it's actually that we settle to live for good things, amen? That we actually settle and live for lesser things. Scripture shows up and says, if you give your life to non-gods, hoping that they can give you what only God can, it is a malfunction of your worship. And then you just carry the biblical story through and it's just this thread of people that trust non-gods over the true God. The thesis of the Bible is that non-gods over-promise and under-deliver and leave us with a malfunctioning hope. True worship is when our hopes are rightly ordered. They're in the right place. Remember C.S. Lewis said that we're half-hearted creatures and that's our problem. It's that we're far too easily pleased, he says, that we actually settle for good things that are good. Don't get me wrong, good. But that we weren't created for good things. We're actually created for ultimate things. We were created to worship and live with hopeful anticipation for and in the God who made us. That's the story of scripture. So this year, as we reflect on Advent and hope in particular, it's in our most honest moments that we are left with the sobering reality that quite often the things we put our hope in let us down, right? You know the cliche, don't get your hopes up. That everything on this side of heaven, Springville, leaks hope. But over and over again, our heart is just bent towards looking for non-God objects to put our hope and trust in. So understand that when we experience that, that loss, that disappointment, what Dylan just shared about that season of his life, of walking through that loss and disappointment, what it actually does is it drops some of our misplaced hopes in front of us, but then draws our eyes up to the true and better hope in the God who saves. Like that's what Dylan just said. And that is the condition of our heart. So here's what we're gonna do. That was my intro, praise the Lord. Here's what we're gonna do. I love how the apostle Peter talks about hope in Jesus. I'll give you the context before we read these verses. But what Peter is doing is that he is writing to the earliest church. He's writing in about the 60s. And you're like, oh, the 1960s. Yeah, I remember those. No, like the 60s, okay? Like the year 60, okay? And he's writing to the church in Rome. Now, what's going on with the church? Well, at that point, the church is already very displaced. They're a diasporic people. They are refugees spread out all across the Roman Empire. By what? Persecution. There's a guy, Emperor Claudius, not a good dude, decided, I don't really like that these Christians are calling Jesus Lord because I'm Lord. So what we can do, let's just get rid of these guys. Missing the point that they tried to do that to Jesus and Jesus got back up again. Weird playbook, right? To be like, you know what we'll do? We'll kill them, right? So now they're spread out all across the Roman Empire and Peter writes to them as exiles because they're not at home anymore. 
They're not settled in the land. They are dispersed. They're disoriented. Their bell is rung. They are all over the place wondering how in the world are we going to fulfill the promises that Jesus gave us for the church? So he writes this like manifesto of resistance to the church. This manifesto of remembrance for, this, for the church that is geographically, but also spiritually aliens in the land. In a sentence, if I was to just sum up First and Second Peter, he's saying to the church, you are not home and God is not done. Where are you placing your hope? You are not home, God is not done. Where are you placing your hope? Watch what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 9. This is one sentence in the original Greek because Peter is really fired up. All, all the English teachers in the room are like, I don't know if I would like this sentence structure. <laughs> Watch this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a, say it, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready for you to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you, we, have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the very salvation of your soul. Woo! He is excited about this. He is reminding the church in the worst of times that that is not the last of times. He is reminding the church that the worst thing that could possibly happen will not be the last thing that happens. Christians, if there's anyone that should be the most hopeful optimists on the planet, it is the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. And notice what he calls this hope. We get new birth in a living hope, and it's waiting for us. Like, it's just sitting waiting for our inheritance. Like, like it, it's there. It's done. And we're waiting just to get to it. What do you do for an inheritance? Nothing. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with who you are related to. And that inheritance, imperishable, untouchable by even death itself, is sitting waiting for us until we get to it. And it's the new identity and the new life that gives us this living hope. And here's what I love about this. Peter shakes us out of a smiley optimism and a positivity and brings our eyes to a living hope. Some of you know, you know those people. Some of you are those people. You're just like, your smiles are annoying, <laughs> right? She's like, why, are you all, why is it always like that, right? But but then again, that's good. Keep smiling. But this isn't just positivity. Just don't, don't worry. Be happy. 
things will get better. But during, during COVID in Quebec, remember I just came from Quebec, right? Um, during, during COVID, there was the rainbows everywhere and it was, ça va bien aller. It's like, everything's gonna get better. It's gonna go okay. And you're like, based on what though? Right? Because I, I don't know, I don't feel like that right now, right? Like just honestly, you're driving around seeing rainbows and you're, ça va bien aller. You're like, uh, probably. But, but, but a living hope is not based on probability. Living hope is based on promise. Living hope is based on the track record of this God who every single time he promises something, he does it. Amen. Right, right? So this is different than just smiley optimism. This is different than just probability because the object of our hope is unfailing and unfading and our inheritance is waiting for us. So I'm fired up about it. Peter is too. But listen, church, only a living hope that is in an object that's worthy of our true hope can ground us in the midst of wandering, can ground us in the midst of exile. That's why Peter's saying this to the church. That's the only type of hope that can actually ground us in the midst of suffering. A living hope isn't just obsessively being positive or living in denial that everything might get better. It's a trust in the person and promises of God in light of what he has already done in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now that's Christmas. That's Advent, baby. That's the hope that we have. That's the foundation that we stand on to then sing songs and give them all honor and glory because God came and got us. God came and rescued us. God came and gave us an imperishable inheritance that is sitting waiting for us. Yeah, you can clap. And notice that he says it's a proven genuineness of your faith that's shown through suffering. You, you catch that? that? That the object of our hope is actually revealed by suffering. You saw that, right? Now listen, suffering reveals true beliefs in our heart. Suffering actually exposes what we hope in. It shows what we're made of and what beliefs have actually shaped our life. And this is exactly why in the West we have no category for it. We have no idea what to do with suffering. The reason why is because the center of Western life here in North America is the pursuit of happiness. And if the pursuit of happiness is the center of your life, that means suffering is only traumatic and a distraction from my pursuit towards happiness. Are you with me on that? So, so suffering, hardship, can only be seen as inconvenient. This is very inconvenient. It's a meaningless interruption to my personal pursuit of happiness. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna avoid it at all costs. I'm gonna build a thick wall of insulation of comfort and prosperity around me, especially in the burbs, and then I'm gonna ignore all suffering and hardship. But guess what? That's an illusion. That's an illusion. Life is hard. Life is full of tensions. Life is full of pain and loss and disappointment. So let me submit to you that our cultural sermon cannot give us anything to actually hope in other than a temporary distraction and escapism. The pages of the Bible drip in the hope in the midst of suffering because of the true God. It drips with this. It's not hope 
aside from suffering, it's hope in it. It's when we're disoriented, when we feel dislocated, when we feel not at home, the pages of scripture drip with a new life and a living hope that proves the object of our faith. So, the Bible never shows up and says nothing hard will happen. It does show up and say the God of the Bible is the only one that can offer meaning in the midst of hard things happening. Do you see the difference? Pastor Tim Keller uh, reflected this way on suffering. Listen, it won't be up there. Just listen or close your eyes and meditate or something. Suffering transforms our attitudes towards ourselves. It shows us how fragile we really are. Average people in Western society have extremely unrealistic ideas of how much control they have over how their lives actually go. Suffering removes the blinders. It does not so much make us helpless and out of control as it shows us that we have always been vulnerable and dependent on God. Like, come on. That is our current predicament, culturally. And it's precisely because the pursuit of happiness is what we've put at the center that suffering can have no meaning whatsoever. But here's the witness of the historic and global church, that the gospel actually doesn't celebrate suffering because there's something broken about this world, amen? There's something broken. What it does do is it tells us that suffering is not wasted, that hardship is not wasted because our God is so hope-worthy that he takes our worst and makes it meaningful. That's the gospel. And listen, we might not always know what the reason is for what we're going through. We might not always know the reason for the loss and the disappointment and the suffering, but here's, listen, the Bible is clear about what the reason isn't. And it can't be that God doesn't see or care or act because that's what Advent is about. That the God of hope draws near. The God of hope enters in. The God of hope puts himself into exile to join his people to bring us out the other side to a living hope. That's Christmas. That's Advent. That's the hope we have. That's the living hope that Peter is trying to just drill I don't know if I'm drilling this morning, but like he's drilling that into the church's heart because they need that. Now, let's understand exile real quick and then we'll close and reflect on a couple things because exile is really important to understand as language. It's a bit foreign to us, but it's a key theme in almost every single book in the Old Testament. Once you see it, I'm gonna ruin you today, okay? Once you see it, you're never gonna unsee it now. It's everywhere. Hope in the midst of exile is everywhere. Some theologians call it the foundational meta-narrative of the Old Testament. Like it's the main thread throughout the Old Testament. Here's a quick overview. The first exile happens where? Some of you guys are like, Egypt. In the garden, right? Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. It's the first exile. They rebel against God, put their hope in non-gods, and God goes, okay, do your thing, scooter, butt tap, get out of here, Right? The next one, Cain is exiled because of his rebellion. Abraham is actually called to exile himself out of his people so that he can be used to bring the people of God into covenant with him. Joseph is then exiled as a slave into Egypt only to have Moses show up and be used to rescue them out of Egypt to go wander around where? In exile. We finally get to the promised land as you get through scripture 
the new kind of garden home that's supposed to replace Eden where God can be present with his people only to be exiled by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and then the Romans. And that is the backdrop for Jesus arriving on the scene. That's the backdrop of him showing up and going, whoa, whoa, do you remember what God said? Exile will end, and I came to end it. But we have to understand there's a shift in the theme of exile, that exile is not just an Old Testament thing about Israel. It's not just a national experience of Israel. Scripture actually tells us that exile is the universal experience of the human heart, that we're all experiencing a bit of not-at-homeness, amen? that we long for a place we've never been to, that there's something in us, there's a, that we're hope-hungry creatures that long for a state of being that we can't quite attain. So what happens? Well, we're disappointed. We're restless. We can't get home. And Scripture allows us to see that that homesickness of the heart It's not about a physical, geographical place, but it's about being in the presence of the God who made us and tells us who we are. James K.A. Smith writes about this. He calls it not at homeness. Listen to this, it'll be up here. If there's a map inscribed in the human heart that shows where home is, the fact that we haven't yet arrived doesn't make it fiction or untrue. It might just mean there's a way that we haven't tried yet. Not at homeness is when we've fooled ourselves into thinking that we're at home with distraction, tricked ourselves into feeling settled only because we've sold our home hunger for entertainments. A sense of not-at-homeness becomes a gift that creates an opening to once again face the question of who we really are. Amen. You see what Smith is doing here is he's pushing this back into our laps and asking us, where's that not at homeness for you? Where where are you having that homesickness of the heart? Where are you experiencing that exile? A sense of hopelessness, a sense of dislocation, a sense of you are a refugee wandering around in a land desperate to get home. Maybe it shows up in broken relationships. Maybe it shows up in just an unending anxiety and restlessness. Maybe it shows up in self-medicating and distraction and escapism. Maybe it shows up in a nagging voice of finding yourself in that next thing. That is all the human heart's condition of exile, of not being at home. This heart-level restlessness is a symptom of a very real historical exile, but the only reason we see a real historical and geographical exile in Scripture is because it starts in the human heart. We're not home yet. We're nostalgic for a place we haven't been to. (laughs) We're unsettled in our soul. We have a nagging voice of exile in our heart. And here's why it's important to slow down and actually pay attention to this voice. Because it presents us with an opportunity to actually examine and evaluate the objects of hope that we've lived for. 
See, I think culturally, because we're such pragmatists and because we are so prosperous, I think planning has been replaced, sorry, planning has replaced hoping. So in Western context, we can just plan because we just have so much. We, We do have quite a lot of control over just variables in our life until we don't. Planning has replaced hoping. So, so we've ended up trading a future hope for the illusion of present control. Anyone? We, we, we've traded patient anticipation for immediate gratification. Hoping is an act of surrender to God. Hoping is an act of grounding ourselves in the promises of God and living our life completely dependent. It is, it is banking on God. <laughs> and him alone. So this becomes not just a reflection of like, ooh, ew, I don't like how that feels. Actually now becomes an invitation to look and say, where should I put my hope? How can I abandon some of the false hopes that I've anchored my life in and actually live truly in, a, in, a, in my most honest, humbling moments and live for true hope and not misplaced hopes? So, Springville. Living hope is hope not based on probability, but promise. This is not wishful thinking. This is not optimism about things maybe working out somehow, someday. But this is a deep and decided confidence in the God of hope. Over 200 times in scripture, key words of hope are used, and it just rings as like a refrain to us. Over 40 times in the Psalms alone, the psalmist is just crying out for hope. Psalm 39.7, he says, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. See that moment of like sobriety of heart there? What am I doing? What am I actually looking to? What am I actually living for? My hope is only in you. Uh, Psalm 135 says, I wait for the Lord and my whole being waits, so I put my hope in your word. Romans 15, 13, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this, reminding his readers of the promises of hope in Jesus, and he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. Do you see where that hope and that peace and that joy come from? A trust in him. If we continue to trust in other objects of hope that cannot bear the weight of our humanity, we will be disappointed. This is a decided trust to say, I'm gonna build my life on you. I don't know what that means. That's scary. I don't know what you're gonna do with it. I'm all insecure and all weird about it. That's okay. I'm gonna put my hope in you, God. That's what this is about. God is the author of hope because he's the only one who can deliver it. And so here's what we do this time of year. We're able to look back and reflect on the past to root us in the present as we look forward to the future. So we're kind of in a time machine. (laughs) Merry Christmas. But I think the past becomes a present for the future, right? Like that's a gift to us that we can actually look back and be like, God, you, man, you, you have not failed to deliver on any of your promises. So I'm gonna trust that what you said about the future is gonna come to pass and I'm gonna root myself in that. That's a gift to us. That's beautiful to live anchored in that. And here's the thing. We'll look at this on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day a little bit more. Jesus' arrival was surprising in lots of ways. Don't get me wrong. 
But Jesus' arrival on the scene was not a surprise. Over 300 promises speak about the coming of the Messiah, the one who would come to finally deliver. It's all over scripture. Where this Messiah would be born, what the life of this Messiah would look like, what this Messiah would teach, how the Messiah would be rejected, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his return to reign eternally as king. It's all there. And we get to sit in that. God saves is the refrain across scripture. It's the chorus of human history that God saves those who would humble themselves and put their trust in him. So Christian hope looks back to Christ's work in order to look forward to the grand finale of what he is going to finish because he's good and he's promised it. True hope is looking to God and saying, hey, regardless of how this turns out, I trust you. (laughs) You know best and you're good. I don't just want good stuff from you. I want you, so give me Jesus. So this morning as we respond, as we sing, as we celebrate, as we reflect, as we pray, whatever it is that God is leading us to do in response to this, I want us to think about where we've put our hopes this year. What are some of the things that you put your hope in and they leaked a little bit this year? (laughs) I think the pandemic kind of dropped that in front of us a little bit more than some of us would like because we realized, wait, I put my hope in things that leak or just blow up, (laughs) right? So, so looking at this year, looking at the last couple years, where, where have you put some of your hope? And, and they're just leaking. And as you pay attention to what's going on in your heart, what are you actually hoping for this Advent? God already knows, but it takes us to actually confess and trust him with what those are. Also, what are you looking forward to next year? Make sure they're not misplaced hopes. Maybe you're not hoping for or in things that will just eventually leak. Identify some of those and trust God with them. Secondly, listen to the whispers of not at homeness in your heart. Don't ignore them. Trust me. You're going to be given every single opportunity to be distracted from them and ignore them, to just kind of manufacture entertainment, consume, ignore, avoid making eye contact with what hurts at all costs. Scripture actually invites us to listen to the whispers of loss and homesickness and pain and disappointment, not to be masochists, to just sit in it and be depressed, but to actually listen to the whispers of those things so that we can see a better object that we can put our hope in. And I love how raw Jesus is and honest he is because he doesn't avoid this. Like he doesn't just, like, that's the thing. Like Jesus doesn't, just, I gotta close. Jesus didn't just show up and like float around like Zen, just be like, follow me. Mm. Everything's amazing. So you smell that? It smells like glitter. <laughs> like like that's, that's, that's not Jesus. There's something so raw and honest about how Jesus actually talks about the human condition. Like in John 16, he literally just says, hey, in this world you will have trouble. The disciples are like, wait, but we're following you. And he's like, no, 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 hold on. But take heart because I have overcome the world. I'm the overcomer. Anything that's overwhelming you, I have overcome. 
right? Like that's the good news. And Jesus doesn't tell us to just kind of get distracted from it. He actually tells us to listen to the disappointment and the suffering and the loss of the human heart, but not be ruled by it. That's what Peter calls all trials of all kinds, right? So let me just validate you. Some of you have had a really, really difficult year. That's real. That's hard. Maybe God is drawing attention to the areas of pain and loss so that he can invite you again to make him your living hope. C.S. Lewis said that pain insists on being attended to. He said that God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts at us in our pain. Maybe God is shouting at us through our pain and our loss. But his voice isn't condemning and shouting at us, making us feel guilty or condemned for what we're feeling. But he's saying, I'm here. You're not home. I'm not done. I love you. I'm for you. I'm the God of hope who can give you life, so trust me. Springville, let's stand and let me pray for us to that end. Jesus, we thank you that you do not avoid the reality that life is hard and tiring, that you invite us to just soberly and truthfully admit that we're not home yet. Father, we thank you that you don't just offer an escape from the tough things in life, but that you offer us a way. We're thankful that you meet us in our homesickness the homesickness of our heart when you offer us the way. Jesus, you said that you are the way to life. I ask for each of us, whether we're here in person or joining online, that spirit of God, you would impress that deep into our hearts this morning. Whether we've been following you for decades or we have not yet put our trust in you, I pray that in this moment, we would be challenged to reconsider what it is that we have put our hope in. I pray that you would just tear out the misplaced hopes, the objects that leak hope on this side of heaven, and you would draw our eyes to you, King Jesus. So as we sing, as we reflect, as we think, as we pray, as we go into this last week before we celebrate your coming, that spirit, you would impress all of this deep into our heart and that we wouldn't be the same because of it. And we ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.